What is the best approach to starting a novel deep tech life science company? In this episode, I'm talking with Samantha Dale-Strasser, CSO and co-founder of Pepper Bio, about her academic career at the University of Cambridge and MIT, and the process of starting her company, Pepper Bio. The excitement for the future that's to come in that we see, we've seen over time, this bringing of new data and information through genomics, through transcriptomics of the last 10, 20 years. And I am ecstatic to be at a time where it's inevitable that we'll see bringing new technologies to bear of larger data sets and data collection in biology. I think it's a phenomenal time to be in the field and excited to be leading the charge and in, in bringing functional data such as fossil proteomics to play to really reach that goal of treating the intreatable. So excited to share the story today. Thanks too for a great chat. Backed by VC firm NFX, Pepper Bio uses proprietary lab methods and computational abilities to unlock a new level of sophistication in drug discovery. Called the Google Maps for Drug Discovery, Pepper Bio helps partners find the safest and fastest route to new effective drugs in clinical trials by analyzing transomics data. So far, the company has already identified applications of its technology for rare diseases in oncology, neurology, and inflammatory. Samantha co-founded Pepper Bio based upon foundational work she pioneered during her PhD studies at MIT. Her development of the first transomic machine learning platform is revolutionizing how we discover drugs and treat diseases. This approach has already identified and validated previously unseen insights in inflammatory diseases and undruggable cancers. She paved the way to Pepper's first commercial partner, eager to apply this approach to central nervous system diseases. In this episode, we are talking about the ecosystem in Boston, the importance of aligning vision, mission, goals, and actions, challenges in drug discovery, fundraising strategy for the United States, the story behind Pepper Bio, and much, much more. Enjoy the show. Samantha, it's awesome to see you again. How are you doing today? Doing well, finally making it past the heat wave here in Boston. So pretty happy about that. Hopefully getting some storms today. So you also have a heat wave in Boston. It's similar. Yes, in, in it Europe. seems like it's been a, a wonderfully worldwide phenomenon. We've all been sharing experiences thereof. <laughs> it's pretty much the same situation in the United States and in Europe. I like I like the background. Uh, are the pictures yours? Did you paint them? Ah, thank you. I I did in fact. I in my free time when I when I have it, which is rare and few and far between, but I always love relaxing with something that I can can physically do with my hands and painting's been a a fun outlet for that for me. So, thank you. What are the paintings about? Um, so they're actually all clouds and images that I've seen just through through trips I've taken or the like. I've always really liked their kind of allowing me to study more color and, and light as opposed to form. And so I can really focus on those first two in, in doing so. Are there many clouds currently in the day sky in Boston? Uh, today, actually, no. Uh, okay. We are very bright blue sunny skies here in Boston. Um, but we have a huge range of, of different clouds that come through with storms, which is always pretty fun. So, 
The last time that I was in Boston was in 2018. It was the Bio International. I think it was 2018. 2019 was okay. in Philadelphia. And I hope that next year I can uh, come back to Boston. What would you recommend me to visit when I'm in Boston as a tourist? Oh, well, there's so many things. Um, I mean, one thing that I've always really loved, the paintings behind me will kind of make sense for this, but mm -hmm. the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is absolutely beautiful. A really unique setup for a museum. It's an old mansion that, that Isabella had, had kind of curated everything herself And the artwork itself is actually located where she curated it to be. So it's unique from traditional museums in that sense. So I will put it on my list for next year. Excellent. Look forward to hearing what you think. <laughs> oh, I will tell you. I will tell you. But it's, uh, it's I think it's uh, eight, nine months. Uh, next year in June should be in Boston. Okay. So we'll Good take time. time. Hopefully before any heat waves next year. <laughs> I, I hope so too. But meanwhile, I'm, uh, I think, experienced with heat waves also here in Central Europe. Yes. Let me mm -hmm. ask you the first questions in our conversation uh, about your academic background. Um, can you describe it a little bit to me? Absolutely. So first, just by way of big picture context, I've always been really excited about finally the data that we have access to in biology, coupled with computational tools and empowered to do something with that. And so I've really structured my academic background around these, these two pillars that I sometimes call a bilingual engineering background. And so for me, that actually started at Northwestern University, uh, just outside Chicago, not too far from my home state of Wisconsin. And while there, I studied biomedical engineering and applied mathematics. So really, again, that duality of biological with computational. And while I was there was actually where I, I met my co-founder for Pepper. So when we chat more about Pepper, kind of our context in many ways goes back over 10 years now. So it's been exciting to, to really have that kind of established you know, connection with someone about working and really bringing a change in the world. Following Northwestern, I went to actually Europe for, for about a year. I went to the University of Cambridge uh, as a Churchill scholar. So I was in Churchill College while I was there. And following my time there, I uh, came back to the U.S. for my Ph.D., so it was while starting my PhD at MIT, again, kind of in this bilingual space of earning my degree in electrical engineering and computer science. So on the computational side, uh, while doing research in Doug Laufenberger's group in biological engineering, that I really started to delve after a lot of the questions that built the foundation for Pepper's technology to date that we've now been building and expanding upon. So it's been, yeah, a phenomenal collection of of individuals and network that I've kind of been able to to grow throughout and kind of bring us to where we're building Pepper today. That's great. Um, MIT is also on, on your list. And uh, there are two stories from the MIT. Uh, so I basically know two or one real people, uh, one real person from the MIT. And uh, one is in a series. It was in the Big Bang Theory, where <laughs> Shelton Cooper always joked around about uh, the MIT and uh, that it's not a real university. Um, so in his opinion, it was a comedy series, of course. And there is this famous podcaster, Lex Friedman, who I think is also or was a lecturer at the MIT. Uh, what I always was curious about, how is life at the MIT in reality? It's, I mean, what I really loved about it is it's a really driven community. So it's a group of people who are really focused on making change in the world. And I think, you know, there's that perspective of, of the MIT hacker, the MIT builder is kind of what you know, often folks might think of. And I was excited to see that 
thread in a really positive light exist. I mean, there's an amazing amount of resources for students, be it undergraduate, graduate students, um, and a real focus on trying something new to make a difference. Uh, that's a, a bubble that I've felt really fortunate to be a part of and really think it's phenomenal what the community has cultivated in that sense. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. And uh, what stands out at the MIT when we, when we think about entrepreneurship? So what I mean, for, I think every person's experiences is really bespoke. So for me, what stood out was just the resources of people who are willing to talk to you and answer questions. So throughout my graduate career in the EECS department, as well as throughout the Institute, there were folks who were really listening to, okay, what do students want? What do they need? What are questions? And they really quickly adapted to serving those requests. And so a lot of that in entrepreneurship meant um, a program that actually we started while I was a graduate student that's now called Start MIT, was historically called Start Six, coming out of electrical engineering and computer science, but was started by Anantha Chandrakasan and was a really phenomenal resource that we grew real time in many ways of to listening to what students needed and to meet that entrepreneurial goal of bringing together alumni, bringing together resources to help people learn what patterns there are to best, you know, really make a, a change in that space quickly. I got my, I was smiling when you were talking because um, it reminded me of my university career in the 90s. And you said that uh, the MIT serves the students' needs. And the story popped up in my mind uh, about the exams back in the 90s. <laughs> and the interesting thing was that the failure rate at the university was pretty high. It was up to 90% yeah. uh, at each exam. And the funny thing was uh, the teachers were really proud of it. So that's 90% uh, of students failed. And now you contrast it with, with stories from the MIT and say, this institution is there to serve the students. Um, how is the service for students at the MIT? It's, I mean, it's been phenomenal from, from my experience. I mean, I think it's funny you mentioned that exec, the exam and the, so the failure rate. I mean, it is very intense. I think mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, every student can, can attest to. There's often the, anal the analogy of it being like a fire hose of just information and of new things to keep understanding and learning and coming mm -hmm. at you, which as you know, can is definitely something to adapt to. But I've found really that perspective in terms of serving students helps to cultivate a community that thinks very quickly and thinks very astutely about, about challenges. I think there's, you know, it's a double-edged sword for sure in terms of the intensity because it is, it is a lot. But I think that's ultimately been serving students for the realm of bringing in challenges that can then help them learn how to overcome and think through that for future things that they do in their career. What's the failure rate at the MIT? So once people are in. It's a good question. Honestly, I don't know. 
I don't have numbers on that. I've not looked. So for me as a graduate mm-hmm. student, I think it's, it's always a different lens versus say an undergraduate perspective, because there's just a very different community in that sense around how classes are taken, how research is looked at. See, my course load was very different than, than an undergraduate student would be. Um, yeah, honestly, I don't know the failure rate to speak to in, in that in terms of numerical numbers. Yeah, I believe both in Europe and in the United States, uh, a lot changed to the better in the last three decades. And um, I think at all universities, um, I mean, we, we can now test if I did my research right and if I listened, listened properly so far. You lived two times in Cambridge, so one time in the United States and one mm-hmm. time in the United Kingdom. What I'm curious about is uh, what are the differences between these these two cities from your perspective? It's similar and different in many ways. So, I mean, as a as a whole, both had a phenomenal community of people. I mean, I think that's a common thread I've found wherever I live, that that's really what, what makes the core of, of, of a location. And for me, my experiences there both had people who were very active and driven about what they were excited to do in terms of their career, the science, um, and, and elsewise in the humanities for, for each, for sure. Um, differences. I, I mean, I personally think the UK Cambridge architecturally is, is more striking, but I just partly myself love (laughs) older architecture. So that's a kind of personal bias. The UK, we love you for that. (laughs) Oh yes, it was it was phenomenal. It kind of for me a childhood dream in many ways um, of just wanting to go visit, and I was was not disappointed. So very much enjoyed that experience. How, how long was your stay in, in Cambridge in the United Kingdom? Um, not long. It was was about ten months. Mm-hmm. For so I was there for a master's degree while I was in in the UK, but made you know in that time the the most of it um, both academically from just the the labs and people I got to know. The, the college experience itself at Cambridge is very distinct. And my friends can attest to, we traveled a lot while we were there. So in that sense was also a really great opportunity across the board in terms of the experience there. Did you travel only in the United Kingdom or did you also visit? No, I actually made it over to Vienna for part oh, of my travels. <laughs> yes. Um, I spent actually Christmas in, in Vienna, which was phenomenal. Uh, but no, we went to Vienna to... Oslo in in Norway to um, a couple of places in Italy, Florence and Barga. So no, we had a, a great chance to to see other cultures and communities while we were there for sure. The most beautiful places from Europe, I guess. <laughs> well, I think you know across the board we were. There's many. It's hard to pick. So <laughs> it was definitely phenomenal time. And when we switch to the United States, how is life in Cambridge in the United States? It's it's actually funny. Every time I leave, I remember the distinctions that make Cambridge and in the U.S. really unique, which a lot of it is just the you have a really high density of students and of people who are at universities, which is definitely makes, you know, you can go to a coffee shop and hear people talking about their research in in, you know, fusion energy. You can go to, you know, just down the street and you'll hear folks that are say from, you know, say the Broad Institute or one of the universities nearby of just working on, you know, large genetics projects. So you have a wide range of really technical people around that is, you know, I think really what makes the community distinct, um, you know, you can walk down the street and see Moderna, you can see Pfizer, you can see just a wealth of really proximal really phenomenal companies and, and industries to be a part of. That's That sounds really awesome. That sounds really great. Um, when 
I was a student in the 90s. So the usual mm -hmm. career, the usual career was you get a degree and then you have to try uh, one choice. Either okay. you go into the industry, you work in the industry, or you pursue an academic career. So it's a standard, I think, uh, uh, PhD and uh, afterward becoming a teacher at the university and that's it for the rest of your life. Um, anything in the 90s, you know, I mean, it was in Austria, it was Graz, it was a very small city. Also, a lot of students in the city and it was very lively and uh, it was fun being there. But founding companies back in the 90s was not the go-to choice for students so it's mostly in austria it was uh, people in their 50s who had a career in the industry and then at the end of the career founded a company a consultancy or something else served the industry mm -hmm. and then retired um what was your motivation in the united states uh to start a company practically right after graduating yeah for me a lot stemmed from the impact that I wanted to make and where I saw most effective for that impact to be made quickly. Um, I've always been really focused on, you know, bringing things to bear that make experiences on our planet better. That's been a driving force for me across the board of thinking about what I want to do in my career. And from the research that I was doing in graduate school, and my goal to make an impact for patients within, within healthcare, I saw the quickest way to do that and to really have the ability to, to grow that the way that I saw could effectively bring it to bear was through a startup. I think there's really, you know, really depends on the research questions and the science, but for me of taking a really fundamental goal of improving how we make decisions in drug discovery, I saw doing that through a startup as the most, the quickest way to do that. Um, for me, I had considered staying in, you know, in more research through academia and the like, um, I found that the questions and the translation ability was would have been a, a different fraction. It had been more focused on research as opposed to focused here, where I'm really focused on bringing that to bear in, in terms of to to market. And for me, that bringing to market and bringing to to application very quickly was the part that drove me to seeing a startup was um, an easy choice in that sense. Um, obviously, there's you know similarities that I think are interesting. You know, some people mm -hmm. say as a PI, you're kind of running your own mini company in your lab, which is true, right? You write grants, you get funding, you hire students, just like we hire employees. It's like a startup. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's something that for me, the translation part to industry, bringing that to folks was much quicker through a startup. Yeah, that's true. I think the, the lab work at research institutions is still more scientific driven than uh, markets driven. Um, let's before we uh, talk about your company. Let's stay a little mm -hmm. bit about this in this in the startup ecosystem. Uh, I tried my first attempt in uh, founding a startup in the nineties. It was uh, something similar to Facebook, uh, but the technology was not that far advanced, um, and it was more a, a local solution because the internet was not so well connected like it uh, was two thousand six yeah. or like it is now. Um, the reactions I got from the environment were quite funny because I think 100% of the people thought simply uh, me and my friends are nuts. It's <laughs> simply crazy to start a company in uh, the internet that nobody needs actually. Uh, and it must be a failure right away. So the support for startups back then was practically, I would say, very, very close to zero. Maybe mm. offend one or the other person, but uh, it is definitely not 
definitely has not been the ecosystem that we see right now here also in Europe. Uh, what I'm curious about is uh, how is the situation for scientific startups in Boston and in Cambridge? It's, I mean, what we found, I mean, obviously it's through a lens of a, you know, drug discovery biotech company. Um, we've found that it's, you know, very strong. You can find networking events probably every day of the week if you really wanted to, in terms of folks ready to to chat about and who are intrigued to see what you're what you're building, what you're doing. Um, and this does extend beyond biotech. There's a lot of resources for also alternative energies. Folks may know the name Greentown Labs is local to here. Um, so there's a a wealth of both resources in terms of mentors, in terms of potential, you know, folks who are excited to join startups. I think that's something that we found really exciting is just the, the community of people. Um, and with universities, I mean, I talked a bit about at MIT, the resources that we have available, but there's, you know, also at Harvard, um, a, you know, life science lab there as well, that helps to really grow and build, um, startups with business school. You have a resource of, again, kind of a, you know, business background of folks that are really focused on that. So it's really dense in that sense of just what's available. And I've been, I think, you know, really, I've been to look back and sometimes remember how wonderful that bubble is. And I think as much as folks can, can find a way to get to know people connected to, it's a very open bubble in that sense that, you know, there's a lot of people excited to chat and we all want to make a difference and finding passionate people is, um, yeah, something that across the board here, folks are very excited about. The ecosystems around Stanford and also in Boston are well known here in Europe. Mm -hmm. And many people dream um, of the abundance of capital in the United States. Yeah. Um, when I look at the ecosystem in Boston, in, from your perspective, uh, when you can only choose three success factors. Mm -hmm. Boston uh, that makes Boston stand out globally. Uh, what are the three major key success factors of the ecosystem in Boston? Um, three. It's always hard to have only, only three number, only three. but no. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I mean pick, highlighting three that that I think are really critical. I mean, one I've talked a lot about even in a conversation thus far. People, right? And I think that's a key facet is just the density of people who are available for mentorship the density of experienced people who have either started companies on themselves or people who have worked within the industry for years that can provide context of how to get things done um, as a, as a company with, you know, nominally younger founders in the field, we found that resource of mentors who are very senior in drug discovery to be phenomenal. Um, the second facet, I guess I'd mentioned kind of building on the people facet is just the, the, really high density of, of world-renowned universities. That's, you know, again, comes back to, you know, the research that's happening there, the momentum, the excitement, the, the students that are there. So kind of circling a little bit back to my first point of people, but that as well obviously gives a really unique ecosystem to exist. And I think even for, for Stanford and, and in the West Coast, that's something that exists there as well. And then I guess the third that I'd highlight would be the hospitals and the surrounding research with that infrastructure. This is obviously distinct to the life science biotech mm. space in particular, but you have, you know, MGH, you have Harvard Medical School, all within walking distance of each other. 
And that density and again, that drive and the again, the people connected there is a really phenomenal ecosystem to be a part of. And I think really makes Boston stand out. See that kind of that collective of three is really a magnet for many other things as well. So that's where you have other companies coming then as a result of that based their R&D here. So you it feeds itself in a really positive feedback loop over time. Yeah, that's true. The third factor, hospitals, I never think about it. I think the the area is very densely populated uh, around around Boston. So there are a lot of people, high population, which helps in clinical trials, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. When, I always kind of laugh for it. We're normally a small city as far as, you know, I think if you're bigger New York's and LA's and the like, but I think within just the density of what we have is it really puts us on the map is just the... Um, yeah, the resources and people are are phenomenal. And I think New York is not far away, isn't it? No, it's not, and definitely much bigger than much bigger than Boston. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, when I fly to Boston, it's mostly three or four days or five days, and uh, let's assume that I decide to stay longer, so two or three days, mm-hmm. uh, to connect to the ecosystem that you described in Boston. Um, what would be a good starting point uh, for someone who comes from Europe, who represents uh, a company and uh, decides to, um, let's say, uh, evaluate if it makes sense to found a subsidiary in Boston and connect to the local community? What is the best starting point? Um, I guess I would have like two two things. So one, and this goes for even Boston or or elsewhere, if there's a one, if there's a conference that's available that offers one-on-one networking that really provides an infrastructure to effectively meet with folks. Um, we found that highly effective at getting to know uh, companies in Boston and elsewhere. I think that's something, it's essentially speed dating for, for meeting companies at conferences. And it's very fast, very rapid fire, but it gives a really quick connection that we found is more directed than say networking um, in a more free form in that sense. So you know a bit more what you're expecting coming in. And I think folks also like that on the other side of the table, knowing what to expect. The second facet, if it Boston specific, would also be to you know plan ahead and really reach out to folks. So if there's specific labs that you're interested in, or if there's specific companies that you're interested in, startups, for example, to, to reach out and just, you know, say, hey, I'll be in the area, would love to grab coffee. I think people are always really excited about that personal connection, especially after, you know, seeing throughout the pandemic how much being in person can add uh, significant, you know, value when you're first getting to know someone. So I think even that level can be really effective at talking, at talking with folks. Once you get to know folks, it's usually also, you know, you can use that as a springboard to, to see if they know other individuals who would be highly relevant to your interests. And that can just from that really snowball in many ways of just people and connections as a result of that. I agree to what you say. I think uh, the most important part in business life are personal relationships and uh, it needs real life. So when someone wants to do something in the United States, founding an office or opening an office is, I think, mandatory and it doesn't work via Zoom 100% of the time. Or at least taking many trips. I think even if it's, you know, opening an office is hard. I think, you know, as much as you can visit in person Mm -hmm. can definitely help to to get boots on the ground, even if intermittently, because I think that, you know, for folks here, you just get a different, to your point of, you know, and agreeing a different connection and 
ability to get to know people and have them feel comfortable in terms of expanding their network to you as well. I so. would have agreed to what you say up to 2020, but currently I think still the um, the travel industry is not where it was it was used to be in the 20s. I always yeah. see, I mean, experienced myself when I, uh, when I traveled to San Diego, I got a weekend extra because I couldn't get a trip back. So taking many trips can be adventurous these days. That is true. I'm, that is absolutely true. I actually, similarly, some folks in RN and for, for bio in San Diego, which I'm assuming was why you were there, was the same yeah. experience that they had as well. Um, and in that how, case, sorry. How was your experience uh, flying from Boston to San Diego? Um, I, I frankly got lucky <laughs> in, in my trip and, and didn't have the, the delays, but I know that that was a rarity. So I guess that, um, to that point for, for folks, I think another avenue, if it's really looking for getting kind of connections more closely, obviously you can have an office here or have, you know, you know, establish, you know, hire individuals who are remote based in mm -hmm. Boston, but can still meet folks in person. I think that's another kind of interesting way, acknowledging the travel challenges and still have a balance of being in person as associated with the company. But any event. It's yep. definitely curious times for travel, for sure. Yeah, probably hits the jackpot because uh, on my way to San Diego, everything went very well up to Chicago. And then a connecting flight was from Chicago to San Diego. Okay. But we had a lightning strike in the airplane uh, midway. So we had an emergency landing in Denver. Ooh. Oh, Which, wow. I've never had that experience. That sounds like an adventure. <laughs> I, I slept through, I was sleeping. So I just uh, got um, a little bit of information after landing. So that it was an emergency landing and uh, people were really yeah. scared and frightened. Um, then we had to think we had to wait about four or five hours uh, for the next airplane. And uh, when the airplane was about to take off, the pilot uh, said that his shift was over. So he has to return to the to the airport. <laughs> uh, and we had to wait another two hours for the next plane. So it was quite, quite funny. And uh, you were lucky, basically. So with a direct flight from, from Boston to San Diego. Yeah. No, I was in a fortunate boat there. But that's yeah, it. that's definitely been becoming more and more rare to hear stories that are that smooth. <laughs> I hope it becomes the new normal in a couple of months <laughs> again. Yeah. No, likewise, um, for sure. Let's let's talk a bit about uh, fundraising in the United States. I mean, uh, the number one reason why companies from Europe have an eye on the market in the United States is fundraising. And the second reason, of course, is uh, accessing the US market. It's the biggest market in the world still. And Europe has a lot of technology to offer uh, due to, I think, uh, the world's best research organizations and the Horizon Europe program that pours uh, every couple of years hundreds of billions of euros into research. But what we don't have is venture capital post-Series A. Mm -hmm. um, you closed your seed round, your pre-seed round with Enifix, right. mm -hmm. a Silicon Valley-based uh, venture capital firm. And what I'm curious to hear is, in your opinion, what are the three main success factors factors for companies when they want to find capital in the United States? 
stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, a few things there. So one in this kind of is, I guess, a common thread, but it is, is networking and getting to know people. Um, I think, you know, the more that you can facilitate getting to know people that can make warm introductions to investors, that is definitely very helpful. Um, obviously not to discourage cold calls, but it is something that the investors are known for saying they, they rarely invest in, in cold reach outs that they look for folks who have been introduced to them by someone that they know and someone that they trust. And so the more that you can just chat with folks become, you know, having connections that can make introductions to investors, this can be connections such as other founders. This can be connections such as, you know, CEOs, if it's later stage funding, um, that can definitely help. Um, a second facet and, and this is, you know, across the board, I think is just talk to a lot of people and investors. I know that's something that we found, you know, it takes a bit to find the right fit and an investor company fit is huge. Um, we were, you know, really excited once we realized on our end, the synergy with NFX and what we wanted to build and their vision as well. And in, in, in tech bio, as they've called it. And we've really, you know, seen that as a great partnership. So don't be afraid if you've talked to 40 people and you're still looking for traction, just keep that tenacity and keep going because there are a lot of different flavors of investors and that finding that right fit is, is huge. And then the last part in that, you know, in that tenacity is just to focus on your strengths and, and leverage that and don't be modest. I think as scientists, sometimes we like to think the science speaks for itself, which it does, but it still needs someone to blow its own horn. And that's you as the founder. And so that's something that, you know, I, I think about a lot. I think initially I, you know, I suffered from that as well, where I was looking at, okay, if the science is great, everyone will see it. But frankly, you know, at the time, you know, I understood it most deeply and a lot of it to, to relay that to someone else is to be bold and to say, you know, really what the potential of that is and why it will change the world. And so really as a scientist, just making sure you're, getting out there and being bold in that and speaking with the science on that front. Excellent points. Let's stay a little bit uh, on the topic relationship building uh, mm -hmm. before asking for money. Uh, I would like to hear your opinion. Um, here in Europe, I sometimes learn that people go on the market when they actually are desperately need for money. Mm. So one percentage, uh, let's say a major percentage of the companies here uh, start fundraising when they have a runway of two to three months. Uh, what was, yeah, this is. <laughs> yeah, so definitely don't wait that long. <laughs> I, would, I would say, you know, there's, 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 you know, different numbers that folks recommend, but leaning towards, you know, six months in this market, they say have a 18 months plus even. 
um, for when you really start fundraising, just because it is the unique market right now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our right now we've been making sure we have, you know, roughly two years just to have that cushion. Um, so that's something that yeah, don't waiting until two months, you're probably hugely underestimating how long it could take. And that's that time is not saying that a, a negative. I mean, that's just a, a factor of of the, what it, the standards are and what to expect. When did you start talking with investors with your company? We started talking with investors early on, actually, when we had the idea and even pre a lot of, you know, really formal operations, my, you know, co-founder had been in venture. And so he had started to establish connections early on just to get to know what do investors look for? How do they think? What are, you know, key things to be aware of, of how to pitch to an investor. Um, and so just in terms of finding some of that out, I think you can very in a non-committal way, just get to know what they're looking for. You don't even have to say you need money. Just say, Hey, I'm thinking of growing a company. Could I, we just chat informationally. I think that's something either in a networking event or the like it's, you know, investors are very passionate about what they do. They want to get strong pitches. <laughs> so if they can help to make that happen, I think that's definitely um, something to look for, for that type of mentorship. In terms of formal operations, we uh, we launched formally actually in January, 2020. Hmm. Interesting time yeah. for sure, as the world changed very quickly thereafter. Um, but you know, that was still an effective getting to know people, getting to know what investors look for. And then we really adapted quickly to, to learn how to best communicate to that audience, what it is that we do. I'm curious, um, to hear your opinion again on a piece of advice I got, I think it was back in 2008, nine, mm-hmm. um, when I was thinking about raising funds, um, I thought, should I get in touch with investors early on and um, just talk with them, find out uh, how compelling the story is already and just hear their opinion and ask someone and say, I wanted to hear the opinion and say, what do you think? Should I go out early before I need the money or should I just go out on the market? Um, As I said before, when I have to put a deal on the table and the advice was you only talk to investors when you want to put a deal on the table. So when you have fleshed out the deal terms and when you want to close the round, never bother investors for just talking. Uh, They will put you on a blacklist. What was your experience when talking to investors? Uh, Does this blacklist really exist? Uh, Did you ever get uh, a negative response when you uh, reached out to investors? It's the way I understood what you said before. Uh, Did you also talk to investors before you needed the money? You just wanted to hear uh, how compelling your story is and uh, if uh, they can consider investing at a later point. Did you get any negative response from that? Um. I mean, not that, I mean, we didn't see anything that we'd been directly aware of that we saw a negative response from. I mean, we had conversations where, um, you know, there's something where depending on the investor, if it's just a smaller check size and they're looking to do, you know, oftentimes and they'll say, you know, chat with us later and, you know, we would, would follow up. Um, and that was received, you know, that that hadn't been a, a detriment to us. I mean, I think there's, there is a balance of obviously you don't want to be, you want to respect their time. And so I think it's a realm where, you know, how that's approached. I think, you know, if it's chatting at a networking event, that might be an easy segue into, to, to getting to know them and to seeing about just chatting through an idea that you're building. Um, 
but I, I think it ends up being very investor dependent. I mean, they're very unique flavors of what they look for and, and what resonates. Um, so I think a lot of it's also reading the room and, and I know that's not a concrete answer, but I think it's a realistic answer of seeing when you get to know an investor, just, you know, if they're willing to chat on that level, or if they say, you know, I've been real booked, you know, come back when you have an idea, then, then take that at face value. Um, but I, again, I think it's, it's worth asking, um, and seeing kind of what their response is to that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Uh, another question came to my mind that I would like to hear your opinion on that. Uh, there are intermediaries on the market. So for example, you can hire consultants for success fees uh, who get you in touch with investors. Did you ever pursue such right? I have a very strong opinion on that. So I can tell you afterward. Uh, I would like to hear your opinion. Uh, when you go fundraising, would you hire intermediaries so that they do the work getting you in touch with the investors? Or do you think it's more uh, the work of the founders? Um. So... From our perspective, it's been something that we focused on as as founders, as opposed to hiring a consultant to to directly do that. Um, I mean, I think there are other you know other avenues to consider. It can be bringing on strong advisors who can help with introductions. Um, that's one way that maybe a, a little bit more of a hybrid. They're incentivized to be a part of your team. You see the alignment of they really want to grow the company, hence they're joining as an advisor, and then acknowledging that they have a strong network to to help facilitate that. Um, so I can't speak directly to the hiring with a consultant in that in that exact sense, but other avenues can be bringing on advisors. We really, you know, leveraged our network and and spiderwebbed through that to to reach folks. Um, was the strategy that we had used? No, I absolutely. So. Yeah. I I agree to your approach. So it's uh, also in my opinion, it's the job of founders. Mm-hmm. And and board members. So if uh, a consultant or a person, not be a consultant, has a strong network, and uh, founders think that this person might be of value in the fundraising process, they should rather bring this person on a board level in the company, yeah. uh, integrate this person in the company as good as it can work with all the uh, environments the person operates in. Uh, exactly. And then go out on the market. I think it's a much stronger pitch than having 20 consultants run around on the market uh, with yeah. pitch decks. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one other thing to think about is when you chat with investors, even if it's not a fit for their portfolio, to ask if they have you know any other you know recommendations and introductions that they can make. And that's something that we we have found helpful as well. Is that then kind of keeps this again kind of you know, spider webbing of, of who, you know, continuing, um, and investors are, you know, we found them very happy to do that, um, as another avenue. So, uh, when we talk about investors in the United States and, uh, mm-hmm. someone comes from Europe to the United States for fundraising, what are the three do's and don'ts, uh, 
that you recommend when talking with US-based investors? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, you know, I guess we can, can start with, with the don'ts. I mean, I think one big one is don't think you're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> I, I think that's one thing that we found investors really, you know, also observe is how as a founder, you listen, how do you, you know, integrate and think about taking advice. Remember at the end of the day, it's still your decision, but it's really respectful. And the investors definitely appreciate your ability to listen and to see how coachable as a team you'd be as they, if you, if they invest, they're working really closely with you and they're joining your team in many ways. And so that's something that's huge. Um, I've talked a bit about the importance of, of connections. So I think if you're you know, able to facilitate warm introductions, I think that the don't here is to avoid cold calls, I guess. And then the do is to, to you know, facilitate warm introductions when possible. Um, that's definitely a stronger way to connect with folks. If it's not feasible, you know, that's not to discourage, you know, shooting out an email or LinkedIn connection, but if there's a warm connection, that's definitely very helpful. Um, and I guess as far as a, I don't know if I'm losing count of your exact three versus three, but I'll, I'll segue to do is the, the biggest thing that I've found is to really step back and ask yourself, what, what is my vision for the future? What am I really building towards? What is the world going to look like when we're successful? Because that's ultimately, you know, what you're selling that, that vision and that, you know, existence of the future that folks can be a part of. And so I think make sure to be bold in that and to show them why your future is going to be something they want to be a part of and look at ways, I guess the second part on the, on that is look at ways that they can help to facilitate that. So this can be through their network. This can be through portfolio companies. This can be through, um, Obviously, you know, capital is a huge part, but investors come with more than capital. And so look at ways when you're chatting with investors that they would be a good fit for that overall. That's that sounded wise. I'm curious about the vision for, for your company. Um, I mean, sometimes when I listen to uh, presentations, um, there is this, this part in the presentation where founders talk about uh, an exit point and uh It always it's always a stopping point in my mind because for I mean when I start a company and don't think in terms of exit I think in terms of building a company and uh, in the best way it's a success like Amazon and we can build it forever like BioNTech or Moderna. Um, what's your vision for your company? So I guess I'll, I'll answer this in two parts. I'll first answer kind of our our vision for the future and then talk about ways that that, that might end up in terms of just the exit or the like. So big picture, our vision is we want a world where we can effectively treat highly complex diseases and that patients who receive that treatment do effectively respond. One of the big challenges we see in drug discovery today is it's, is your even take oncology. You, if you're lucky enough to, to have a cancer where there's a treatment available, there's a next step of you have to be in a category that will actually respond. And then a further step where you hope you don't have resistance as a result of, of the cancer evolving and, and overcoming, you know, the, the treatment itself. So our goal is with the complexity of our approach of transomics, as we've called it, we can effectively understand the complexities of that disease to, to drive towards, think of a buzzword, but essentially a true personalized disease medicine in that sense. And so I can, you know, we can go into what that means under the hood, 
But fundamentally, that's the vision is you go to the doctor, you're diagnosed, you're prescribed a treatment and the treatment works. And so that's where we'd like to see going in the future and what we can build with that. What that means for us as a company is we are a drug developer. So we are developing our own drugs and we also partner with other pharma companies to support their programs. This allows us to really effectively leverage our technology across a range of different diseases because our end goal for us as founders is maximize impact for the patient. And so what that means in terms of exit is this, I mean, there are, I think, a, a lot of different avenues that this could go down depending on the future. We aren't, you know, we're to your point, we're, we're building it for making our, our vision of the future come true and making that successful, which will then ultimately lead towards, you know, a, a highly successful lucrative exit for our investors. And that could be through, um, that could be through an acquisition that can be through selling drugs themselves. I think our, our goal is to remain a, a drug developer and to, 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 do that through selling assets and the like. You know, we'll, we'll see what the future holds. I mean, obviously, if I had a crystal ball, uh, I could tell you more specifically, but our, our building is to make the most effective company that we can, not to focus on a particular exit in and of itself. My crystal ball stopped working in March 2020. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if mine was really that effective before March 2020, but I'll still, <laughs> I'll still shoot for the moon in its own right. So... I'm really surprised how, how the world turns out to be in the last three years. Um, let, let's stay a little bit with your company. Um, what's the story behind the foundation of the company? So is there, uh, what, what was the reason why you decided uh, you want to uh, found the company with your co-founder? Is there some, some uh, initial event or some special event that uh, made you going uh, in that direction? I mean, I'd say there's there's many things that built up to it. I think there's two fundamental facets. One was for for my co-founder and I working on together. Um, we, as early as our kind of getting to know each other during our undergraduate studies, really appreciated our approach to the big picture that we wanted to impact, um, as well as just working together on projects. We frankly had a lot of fun. We really reinforced um, you know, kept a lot of momentum we were working on. We came at things very rationally, which I think was something when we had differing perspectives, we found really effective towards providing an end result that was greater than what each of us would have seen individually. And so that ability for us to really grow ideas and to develop something effectively, we saw as, you know, phenomenal for if we grew a company together down the line. So we kept in touch over time about ideas and in terms of, you know, the real focus that we've had on healthcare for each of us, this stems from, you know, obviously a lot of, you know, personal experiences with healthcare system, essentially um, failing to deliver. And that experience of what that means individually when for me, it was when my father was diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia and the experience of witnessing that was something that I had never really conceptualized what that means until being in the thick of it and really realizing how much, you know, the, the healthcare system doesn't know. I mean, that was what was so striking to me is we were told essentially to, you know, we, they can do imaging studies, but had nothing to help understand or treat the disease further than that. And going home and watching someone fade away was, I don't want someone else to experience that. 
And that's what drives me to making a difference is to find treatments to change that for someone else's family's future. And is what, you know, gets me focusing on so much of my time on making this a reality because I know what it's like when, when the healthcare system doesn't deliver because we just haven't understood the disease enough. And they're really complicated. I'm not, I mean, that's something that I've found, you know, really humbling in terms of biology itself is the sheer complexity of the diseases themselves and the need for really comprehensive approaches to tackle them is been focused on for years. And I, we're finally at a point, hence launching Pepper today, where we can reach that much more effectively. So bringing together new data types and analytics to really look at comprehensive, look at complex diseases from a new angle to start to find new options for treatments. I'm sorry to hear about your father's disease. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it's... I know I'm not alone in this. And so for all the other folks out there, you know, I, I feel what that's like. And my goal is to make a difference for those in the future. So that's, yeah. that's it. That's a great approach from, from your end. Let's you. uh, talk a little bit about uh, the problems in drug developments that uh, leads to such situations. Mm -hmm. um, when I stay with the numbers, um, I think uh, I always tell the story that from 90, from hundreds drug candidates in the lab, 99 fail so they don't make it even uh, to translational research mm -hmm. and when i look at uh, translational research so uh, nine out of ten candidates fail and when i go further down the road in clinical development we have the same picture nine out of ten fail uh, i would like to hear your perspective with your experience uh, what are the big problems in drug development uh, that needs to be solved to understand diseases better and to help more people that i mean that's a fundamental question that we talk about a lot is you know and when we built pepper what we really looked at was what what our researchers really you know chiming in on what's the biggest problems and we really found three we call pillars that we think about that we at Pepper overcome. So the first is one of the big challenges um, is looking at global information. So if you think about traditionally, a lot of times folks even talk about, they might have a favorite pathway that they look at, but they have a really narrow lens of what defines a, a disease itself. And historically this made sense just given the data we had access to, so we see why we progressed there. But this, this focus on really narrow pathways is part of what drives the problem you outlined. So let's say we look at a pathway to find a disease, but miss really critical feedback mechanisms that are outside of that canonical pathway. So at many stages in that development, which can be early on, which can be later in the clinic, there can be pathways of feedback that ultimately show, say, toxicities that are detrimental. And you see, again, those numbers come again and again of things not working. And that's one of the key reasons why is folks miss early on looking at fundamentally critical components to understand that disease and how to best treat the disease. A second facet that we found is looking at essentially the, the right type of information. So we've gotten much better over the last 20 years. We've been phenomenal at having genomics data. That's only part of the picture. Biology is a highly complex multi-step process that goes from genomics to transcriptomics to, to proteomics to then modified proteins. And it's those modified proteins that are the end molecular players. And so really what we want is the ability to capture this entire scope 
of that multi-step process as opposed to focusing on very early stages of it. So that's a key part that we overcome by bringing functional information. So by having this functional context, we can really see a refined ability to understand what proteins are doing in a disease and how to then best intervene to correct that, to treat the disease. And so this really, again, will drive that improving our ability to select targets and to make informed decisions at each step in that drug discovery process. So those numbers that you listed can be improved. And then lastly is a realm of look of how we look at these data layers. And so this, this third pillar that we talk about a lot is what we do at Pepper is drive towards a more causal understanding of the interplay between these data layers. That's highly complex in the sense of, again, how like if you have a transcript that's increased, you may not see the same increase in protein. So we need to make sure we look at understanding how these interplay and what their relationships are to best identify the true disease drivers that aren't just a you know artifact of correlation that are more driving at the true biology. That's a very interesting point. Um, I read an article recently, I think it was one, one or two weeks ago, uh, with the bold statement that... Uh, 90% of all scientists who ever lived on this planet are still alive today. So the so 90% of all scientists that mm -hmm. ever lived on this planet are alive today. The when you look at the graph of the PhDs, you see an exponential increase in the last 20 years. Hmm. So there is a lot of science going on these yeah. days. And I always thought, how can you make sense of the tremendous amount of data that's produced um, globally? What, what's, what's your solution to that, to that problem? I mean, uh, PhDs produce a lot of papers, a lot of articles, a lot of uh, um, lab-based research data. Mm -hmm. Then we move it into companies. Uh, we get more data on top of that. And uh, everything is stored somewhere in uh, PDF files. I guess, and uh, the organization sometimes feels to me that we are still stuck back in the 80s, 90s in databases. Uh, Google search is great, but I'm not so confident that Google search or also the search engines in the scientific world are that far advanced, like uh, like development. I think not much changed in the last 20 years. Uh, what new solutions do you bring to the market when it comes to data? So our, I mean, our solutions in terms of what we're bringing that's unique is one, just how we you know, how we look at the data itself in the realm of how we're actually interpreting the data in an effective way to understand, I guess it's, it's twofold. So one is the data that we collect itself. So this is that those data layers I'd mentioned of genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, phosphoproteomics. So we're comprehensive in the data that we bring, but secondly, and this is probably a bit to more to your point of just data that's out there, how we leverage that is we also bring in what we call reference data. Mm -hmm. And so, especially in biology, it's really complex and there's been a wealth of information that folks have established to date. And so we do, you know, we have a unique approach to bring in that reference information that consists of, you know, protein interactions. So established relationships between proteins and substrates, for example. We bring in that information in our own unique way that actually allows us to better leverage that data. We actually expand upon that by leveraging across different experimental systems in a way that 
very robust. So we still have abilities to have experimentally specific data. So we're not making spurious conclusions, but we can expand upon what's there and better leverage that huge wealth of information that keeps growing. Now, I think your question brings up an even larger, more complex problem of just, okay, if we have all this information, even beyond, say, the reference data that we look, just data from biology and and other sciences, you know, I think that's a a larger question that we'll see changes to over time of how we best search and access information and how we store it. I think it's exciting to see where we've come. Like you mentioned in terms of search in general has been huge. Um, but I think that's, it's also its own unique space of, of information prioritization and storage that's then commonly available. But I think that's a whole nother realm. We could probably have a whole nother podcast that focused on that because (laughs) it's, it's a exciting space and definitely a challenging space in its own right. I um, saw the look on your face when I mentioned the, the statement before, and I have pulled out the article uh, while you were speaking. Can can show you here. It's a Future of Life Institute, and they state ninety percent of all the scientists that ever lived are alive today. And it's very interesting to read. It's a very short article, but when you look at the worldwide PhDs granted annually, just forget it's the last twenty years that there is an exponential increase. So, and I think it will continue. I mean, when you look at the United States, there is a lot of funding for universities. When you look at uh, Europe, United Kingdom, we have a lot of funding available. And uh, every year read that the governments want to add more public funding to that. And I believe, I mean, China wants to become the global innovation leader. So this is a statement mm-hmm. that they have uh, put out in 2017, and they also pour a lot of capital into research. Yeah. So I think the data production will go up exponentially. No, it's definitely a really astute observation about the the data that means itself. And I think it's, you know, there's... That's one thing that we're excited about with our own company is the ability to internally start to establish our own very robust, clear, and applicable to the problems that we're solving data infrastructure. I think that's something in talking with folks at other companies, when you have a really large company, that it's a lot of momentum to make a change. And so that's something I guess just personally, I find really exciting about what we're building in startups themselves is we're very adept. We're very small. We're very, you know, agile in being able to, to respond to information in a way that just is logistically much more challenging in a larger company. So I guess that's just a plug for all the folks out there who are excited about joining a startup. Um, I think that's one of the strong suits is just speed to adapting and to growing in its own right. That's true. Let's talk a little bit about your team. What uh, makes your team excellent? Makes our team excellent. Many things. Um, but I mean, I guess the things that highlight, we we are a very passionate team, a very driven team. Um, that's something that when, you know, we are the partners that we work with, both on our core team, as well as advisors and, and investors that we look for their drive towards achieving, you know, the, the vision that we're building towards. Um, second would be a team that's very diverse so we have folks from a range of different backgrounds. Um, we have biologists, we have a theoretical physicist, we have 
um, you know, folks experience more deeply on the business background and banking. So we really have a breadth of perspectives, which is something that I've found in, in our team and I think across the board is key to really solving challenging problems because, you know, within an individual field, I think just by nature of groupthink, there can often be blinders that that come to play. And so we think very carefully about how we've been growing the team to overcome that by bringing in folks who say haven't been embedded deeply in the field for you know decades where that may happen and just by nature of, of experience and exposure. Um, and then a last facet, I mean, it's something that we've seen across the board of just the ability to, to adapt to things quickly. That's something that, you know, for folks joining a startup that is critical because there's, you know, a lot of responding to what the needs are at the time of seeing, you know, where the technology fits best and being able to critically think through that and really accomplish the overarching goal in the most effective way possible. We talk a lot about goals in terms of our company that making sure that we're focused on reaching an endpoint that's clear and that our actions are most attuned to reaching that. And we've found, you know, our core team to date has been phenomenal at doing so. And we're grateful for just the experiences we've had with them so far and excited to bring more folks on. We're actually hiring right now, um, both kind of for the broader team in in R&D, as well as um, within um, building out experience within the development side. And so if folks are interested, that is something we're actively recruiting for. Um, and if you're excited to build out the world's nest transomics platform and be a part of that core platform development, uh, come talk to me. Would love to, to hear your thoughts and interest there. That's a great message because the user, usual message currently on the market is we are laying off people <laughs> and you go the other directions and we're hiring. Ah, well, we've been very, very particular on we, you know, we're, we're thinking very strategically amidst the current market, but we have big goals that we're accomplishing and we are focusing on on reaching those. And some of that is right now is building out the team. So if folks are interested, definitely uh, excited to chat. So I'm, I'm curious, um, you closed the pre-seed round and yes. what mm -hmm. is the big goal that you would like to achieve with your team with the pre-seed capital? Um, so we're actually our, our next immediate milestone that we're building towards um, is to reach is to identify a drug candidate that can reach the clinic quickly. That's one of the things that we talk about a lot for a validation. Um, and so we're working on some early discovery studies to support that um, while also partnering with pharma um, in parallel. Since we're building out the platform, we can use that internally as well as partnering with pharma. And so by establishing that candidate that can quickly reach the clinic, as well as through partnership validations, we really demonstrate our ability to successfully apply our technology. This builds upon existing validation that we have to date from work that's been carried out in oncology systems, where we've effectively showed um, stratifying unique um, tissue and mutation types within cancers. Um, we've also demonstrated in inflammatory diseases to date, where we have effectively identified a novel target. And then lastly, we've also already achieved um, a partnership with Pharma where we actually broadened their understanding of a drug's mechanism of action. And so that was a kind of a really exciting opportunity to bring value to the pharma pharma space to date already. I'm, I'm curious in your operations, um, 
the audience of the podcast is 50% in Europe and 40% in the United States. And you said that you're hiring. Uh, do you have a global focus in your hiring strategy or would you prefer that people move to, to Boston, Cambridge? Um, we are for our core team. We are looking for folks to to preferably be local. In part, just we're a small company, and that's a huge part for us of establishing a strong culture. Um, we think that you know being able to be in the same place, being able to get to know each other, especially at this size, is really essential. Um, and that's just been again a strategic facet of we want to know that we're effectively growing Pepper's identity in that sense. Um, but we are looking for folks globally. I mean, that's something if there's a fit, we we do um, we do support visas. See, there's always timing facets that come into play with that to discuss, um, but very open to to chatting with folks globally and seeing if there's a fit. So how difficult is it to get the work permit permission in the United States? Um, it really depends on country. And I'll admit that's my my depth on that is really case by case. So uh, I don't want to speak for for across the board, but it's something that we do look to to bring in um, folks. You know, first we we look by fit and then can can sort out the details supporting that. So when is your next fundraising round planned? Um, so we are actively raising um, at mm -hmm. this point. So if investors are excited to to chat about what we're doing and to to be a part of building the world's first transomics platform to treat the untreatable, very excited to talk. Um, we are actively working on on closing that raise. So very happy to connect. Um, may I ask how much uh, money you are looking for currently? Um, we aren't disclosing numbers just over over podcasts and, and interviews, but we're happy to, to chat with folks and talk more on details of the terms. So. And what is your preferred investor? So what would be your perfect investor at this point in time, if you could select? Yeah, um, I mean, so broad strokes, it's we're looking for an investor who is as passionate about changing the future of drug discovery as we are. Um, and also doing that through a repeatable process, uh, through a platform technology that can discover uh, novel drugs. So that's something that we've you know been thrilled about within you know being working with NFX and are thrilled to to meet new investors that are focusing towards that vision. That's uh, that's a great interview. Uh, Samantha, I could continue asking questions, but I had to look at uh, at uh, the time and we are here in in uh, Vienna. It's uh, six forty, so we are ten minutes over time already. And I know that you have a lot of uh, work to do. Uh, is there anything in the podcasts that I missed and that you would like to add at the end? Um, I mean, I guess the the only resounding kind of closing note that I'd give is the the excitement for the future that's to come in that we see, we've seen over time, this bringing of new data and information through genomics, through transcriptomics of the last 10, 20 years. And I am ecstatic to be at a time where it's inevitable that we'll see bringing new technologies to bear of larger data sets and data collection and biology. I think it's a phenomenal time to be in the field and excited to be leading the charge and in, in bringing functional data such as fossil proteomics to play to really reach that goal of treating the untreatable. So excited to share the story today. Thanks too for a great chat. Uh, really loved our conversation. That's awesome. I have one final question that I would like to okay. ask. Um, in, in, uh, my community, there are a lot of scientists who think about founding a company and um, coming up with a vision 
often is uh, I think every every scientist has some sort of vision that uh, keeps them going. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to founding a company, I realized that uh, finding the first step towards uh, founding a company sometimes is tricky for some people. Uh, what is your advice when someone says they would like to found a company, but I don't know what they should do first? What is your advice to this type of personalities? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the across the board, I would seek a mentor who's been an entrepreneur. I think there's a lot of, you know, insights that can be gleaned from someone who's walked through that door before. Um, they can also be a phenomenal sounding board as you're going through the process of, you know, finding investors of, you know, finding hires. I think that that type of sounding board mentor and resources also just as a, as a, you know, individual, I think really helpful to be able to pick up the phone and call someone and say, I, I need help on this. What do I do? And at least talk with someone who's been through it before, who either has an answer or may know someone who has an answer. Um, so I think as much as you can find a mentor, that is the biggest piece of advice that I would give. That's that's great advice. Um, Samantha, thank you very much for this amazing conversation. I enjoyed Likewise. it from the first minute to the last, and I would love to keep going, but uh, that time is scarce. Uh, let's have an update when you close your next funding round. I'm curious to learn what changed then in your company. Perfect. Sounds excellent. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for being part of the show. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Did you like the episode? Then please, please, please leave a five-star review on Spotify and Apple and make sure that you like, comment and share the YouTube episode. It helps that the algorithm delivers the episode to people who also benefit from it the same way than you did. Have a great day.